Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. An organization that supports active duty service members has launched an initiative to make changes of duty stations a little easier. The Military Family Advisory Network has partnered with some large retailers to give families a little something when they arrive at the new location. Here with the details, the network's president and executive director, Shannon Razadin. Ms. Razadin, good to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me. And tell us a little bit more about the Military Family Advisory Network. There's a lot of sure. service organizations out there, mostly for veterans, but you're talking about the active duty folks, huh? Absolutely. So we're a 10-year-old organization. What we do is we conduct research and work directly with families to identify where people need more support and then build collaborative solutions. And so we've uh, done a lot of work to uncover the challenges that military and veteran families face. And then we really work to make sure that we're not just sitting on this information, but that we can develop these collaborative solutions that will drive change where people need it most. And it seems like change of regular duty station, they happen hundreds of thousands of times a year, always fraught with difficulty for families, starting with the move itself, the physical moving companies and all of this. But apparently, from what you're doing, arrival can be a challenge. So we research the issues and the causal factors that lead to, for example, food insecurity and some of the economic security challenges that families experience And after we've interviewed more than 300 families who are experiencing these difficulties, we found that there were a few things that were happening in people's lives that brought them to the greatest point of vulnerability. And one of those was a recent move. And so what we are doing is we're working with partners to help make those moves a little bit easier and ease some of the financial burden that's associated with a move, starting with this pilot at Fort Cavazos. All right. Well, let's tell us what they get, what you organized here to present them with. So when families arrive at Fort Cavazos, they will have the opportunity to receive a pantry starter kit. And what that is, is it's this box that's filled with about $150 worth of things that you have to throw away or replace every time that you move. And while so many of the move-related expenses are covered, there are things that are out of pocket that people do have to lean into their budget to figure out every time that you move. And when that happens every two and a half years, it creates this constant restart that can put people behind the eight ball a bit when it comes to their finances, not to mention things like paying first and last month's rent. And so when people figure out when they arrived for Cavazos, we're getting them these things that they might need, but then also we're helping them plug into local resources. As an organization, we believe that oftentimes it's not a case of if the resource that provides support is there, but it's more so if people are aware of it. And so when you're living this transient life and moving on average every two and a half years, it can be difficult to plug into resources. And so we're creating this dignified mechanism to provide support and help people connect locally when they move. And so in that kit are food and household items like mops and that kind of thing? Everything from shower liners to shelf stable items. The thing is that we might not think about, but when you arrive, it's, oh gosh, I forgot about blank. Uh, things like it's how difficult it can be to create those first few meals when your household's goods have not arrived yet. And so we're really trying to make life a little bit easier and let people know that we're with them every step of the way. We want this transition to be as easy as we possibly can and to help people connect with those local resources so that they can as seamlessly as possible integrate to their new home. 
And Court Cavazos is the, and I'm reading from their website, the Army's premier installation to train and deploy heavy forces. It sounds like a lot of people go through there in the basic type of training, and it sounds like a lot of the people that go through there are probably at the lower ranks and the lower paid ranks. Is that why you chose that location for this program? Tom, that's exactly why. And when we looked at food insecurity, we saw that around four Cavazos had the highest frequency of food insecurity. And so we know that people there, in some cases, are having a hard time making ends meet. And so we wanted the data to drive where we started this program. And that is why we chose four Cavazos. We're speaking with Shannon Razadin. She's president and executive director of the Military Family Advisory Network. Sounds like you know something a little bit about being a military member or spouse that gets moved. I do. My husband and I got married, and then immediately we moved overseas to Rota, Spain. And the culture shock, both from the perspective of moving to an Oconus location and then figuring out what life as a military spouse looks like, it can be hard. And so I'm really honored to do this work. Most of us at Military Family Advisory Network are military connected. And so we bring an authentic approach to the work that we do, and we're really proud to serve the community and integrate ways to make sure that what we are doing is actually driving impact and driving change. So we really build in rigorous program evaluation into the work that we do to make sure that families get the help that they need. Because at the end of the day, families do not care who the support comes from. They care that they get the support that they need. And so we're focused on being that conduit and helping people navigate every phase of military life. And you have participation from Tyson Food and Walmart. I guess between those, there's lots of chicken to eat and everything else you could need in life. And are they donating these materials into these boxes? So the support looks very different depending on who the partner is. So you mentioned Tyson Foods and Walmart. They are really providing the funding to get this pilot off the ground. We also just announced a partnership with Instacart. And so when families are arriving, they're asked to take a brief survey. And if they screen as food insecure, they are going to be able to get food support from Instacart. Again, creating these dignified solutions to help people navigate the challenges that they're experiencing. And so we believe that through smart partnerships, we can make one plus one equal three. And uh, we're really honored to have these incredible partners doing this work alongside of us because at the end of the day, moves are difficult. And uh, we're all here to make it a little bit easier for these families. And do you have volunteers that are stuffing boxes and that kind of thing? Our partners have been incredible. And so we've teamed up with Armed Services YMCA and the Cohen Clinic. They are distributing the boxes, but we are working with an organization called Emoja, and they are putting the boxes together at their warehouse. And we're really proud of just the warmth these boxes exude, not just from the things that are inside, but also the care that's going into putting these kits together for families. And what's important to note is that this is the first phase of this work and we'll be rolling out the next several phases over the course of this year. And we're very excited to help really address these left of crisis experiences for families. Yeah. My question is, can this scale? Because when you start looking at all the possible military installations, you've got a pretty big challenge here. It can scale. And that's really why we've taken the intentionality that we have. And so what we are doing right now is we're testing and learning a lot. And from there, we'll take a look at our data. We just closed a survey in December to figure out where is the next location that needs the greatest support. And we'll scale to that location and and grow from there. At the end of the day, as an organization, we're focused on being the catalyst. And so we're really hoping to create the proof of concept 
and then really, you know, see where it goes. But we really are invested in making sure that this works, making sure we have the data that backs the impact of the program and growing it because families need the support and they turn to different places for support. And so there's not a one size fits all solution, but if we can leverage these welcome kits, smart technology and smart partnerships, we really feel that we can help a lot of families. And by the way, how do you discover which bases have high levels of food insecurity? I mean, how do you define that and how do you discover how many people are affected by it? Sure. So we use the USDA six item short form food security scale in our research. And because we own our research start to finish, we are able to dissect our data down to the zip code level. And so that tells us which locations have the highest frequency of food insecurity. That is what informed the work that we did around our Million Meals Challenge. We hosted food distribution events at the locations where we saw the highest frequency. So that was Fort Liberty. That was uh, Joint Base Lewis-McCord in Washington, the Norfolk area, and Fort Cavazos. And so we're really committed to letting the data tell us where to go and what to do. And that's because we own that research and because that survey has such a significant response, it allows us to really make informed decisions. And do you find good cooperation on the part of commanding officers and the apparatus that's in place already? I mean, this place is hundreds of thousands of acres. There's lots of stuff going on, but you find that uh, they'll let you fit into the flow of people arriving? So since the Taking Care of People initiatives that have been rolled out from the OSD and the Department of Defense, we have seen a lot of great support at the local level. And we continue to lean on that. We continue to be partners. And, you know, we don't want to reinvent the wheel here. We want to help complement the existing work that is there. And we also recognize that 70% of military families are living off installation. And so how do we leverage the local community and make sure that people are plugged into what they need, regardless of where they are? So how do we meet families where they are? And that's a really important question that takes a public-private partnership approach. So if a soldier and their family move in next door, bring over a plate of brownies and maybe a few cans of tuna fish. You know, it couldn't hurt. And I think that we rely so much in some cases on technology, but it's that warm interpersonal connection that I know so many of us miss in a post-pandemic era. I think that's very important. And as we look at the data, the data reinforces that. We know that families who are experiencing food insecurity are more likely to experience loneliness. And so these are things that create complex, interconnected challenges. And so we're really, again, working to get left of the issues so that we can ultimately prevent things like food insecurity in the military community. Shannon Razadin is president and executive director of the Military Family Advisory Network. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to The Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. 
Explain what that is and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Right. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance and I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week 
and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it, and building modules or or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight... I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce, because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? 
Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules, can we make it a menu, can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role. So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins 
who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.